Today's podcast guest started out as an engineer, but then pivoted and became a patent attorney. Find out how that happened and why and when Amazon sellers would need patents for their products. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Serious Sellers Podcast by Helium 10. I am your host, Bradley Sutton, and this is the show that's a completely BS-free, unscripted, and unrehearsed organic conversation about serious strategies for serious sellers of any level in the e-commerce world. And today, again, we have an in-house guest, not a remote one, sitting across the table here from me is the one and only Rich Goldstein. Rich, how's it going? Going well, thanks. Now, this is not your first time, definitely, of course, to Orange County. I think I might have related this experience before, but it's it's not one of my better moments. But you were out here a few months ago for the Elite Workshop, right? Yep. That we right. had. Came out here uh, with Liron, and and then we went to a, a club afterwards. We were thinking we're all bougie, or I was thinking I was all bougie. Had a bottle service at a table, and then you come in. You know, I was there already. You come in, and you you come in with a little uh, like a little baggie, uh, and it had these like very colorful small things. And I was like, whoa, that's so nice of Rich to offer me uh, these. And he put a couple in my hand. I was like, these are some great looking gummy bears. So of course I pop it into my mouth and I'm like, these and are said, not no, very no, good. No. Yeah, these are not very good tasting. And why, you know, the music is very loud and Rich is making all these hand gestures and saying, no, no, no. And so why were you saying no, 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 Rich? Because it was an earplug. <laughs> they were the, the earplugs. Ju- the Jewish mother and me <laughs> brought earplugs for everyone so that- we could tolerate the evening of being in loud music at the club. Now, whenever I see you here in Orange County, I just, you know, go back to uh, go back to there. And I know we're about to film some things in the tequila tasting room soon. So whenever I think of alcohol, I'm like going to think of these earplugs that I thought were gummy bears. But anyways, I always start out these podcasts trying to get a little background. And I love showing people that, you know, we don't only interview Amazon sellers here, but whether they're Amazon sellers, whether they're in any way related to the e-commerce world, we have never had two guests with even remotely close background. And I'm sure that's not going to be the case with you. So let's take us back and let's hear the, the Rich Goldstein origin story. Like, where did you grow up? What was your major in college? Things like that. Okay. Well, I'm from Staten Island, New York, and that's where I grew up. I went to a a pre-engineering high school. And so naturally I went into electrical engineering, went to SUNY Stony Brook, study engineering. And um, while I was studying engineering, I realized that the reality of being an engineer would be working on the same project day in and day out, maybe for five years at a time, designing one little piece of some other piece of equipment. And that just seemed too mind-numbingly boring to me. Uh, So I I began to explore what else I could do. I, I really enjoyed engineering, but I didn't want to get stuck in that type of career rut as I saw it. And someone suggested to me patent law. So I finished electrical engineering. I went to law school. I actually went to Brooklyn Law School. And I became a patent lawyer. And now I get to work on something different every day. Sounds boring to some people, but to me it's exciting because I think in life, a lot of people really want to have a job regardless of what profession it's in that's different. You know, it's not monotonous. And, And by definition, the one industry I think in the whole world that by definition cannot be monotonous in the same is probably patent law because the whole concept behind it is like, you can only have one thing that, <laughs> that has a patent. We reject things that aren't different. Yeah. <laughs> the whole criteria for being in 
doing something in patents is to be different. You have to be different enough to be worthy of a patent. So, uh, so don't spend too much time on things that aren't different. Okay. Now, only in the last few years, uh, you know, I was just actually just, you know, like what, 10 minutes ago, hearing some of this story about how you, you got tied into the Amazon world. You know, you're not an Amazon seller yourself. And, and that's, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but how many years were you doing patent law and, and, and things of that nature before getting connected kind of with the Amazon world? Yes. Well, let me tell you first that I love marketing. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I'm here is because I, I really, I've always loved business. I've always loved marketing. Um, one of the reasons why I, I was bored in engineering school is because I started a business while I was in, in college. And, uh, and that had me say, I want to do something more than just um, being an engineer. And uh, so I've always been involved in, in, um, in business and in marketing. And, and actually, as I was graduating law school, I realized that I didn't want to work at a, a big firm like everyone else, get stuck in a job working at a big firm, 80, 90 hours a week. Uh, and, uh, so I decided that I wasn't going to work for anyone. I was going to start my own firm. So I started my own firm right as I graduated law school, which is relatively unheard of. I mean, typically when people end up in their own firms, it's because they worked somewhere else for a while and eventually they leave with some clients Mm -hmm. and then they start their own practice and maybe grow it from there. Uh, so for me starting my own practice as I was graduating law school, I said, well, how am I going to get business? But what I did was I actually started a magazine for inventors and I advertised in the magazine. So you could say I was doing content marketing in the nineties in print. So before the Mm. internet really had taken hold, I was, I had this magazine that was going out to people that were interested in, um, in inventing and, um, and patenting something. And, uh, and I was right there as the source of the information and, uh, and that, what I used to grow my practice. So, so I always loved marketing and I was getting ready to launch my book a few years ago. So the American Bar Association asked me to write a book to explain to entrepreneurs how patents work. I wrote the ABA's Consumer Guide to Obtaining a Patent. Point is, um, getting ready to launch the book and I wanted to just get my marketing chops up to speed, see what people were doing these days. I went to Traffic and Conversion and, uh, when I was there, I, I realized that I wanted to be surrounded by people that were heavily involved in marketing. So I joined their mastermind, which is known as War Room. And War Room is a mastermind of seven to nine figure marketers. And, uh, and once I joined War Room, I was surrounded by lots of marketers. And I realized that all the people there needed help with patents and trademarks. So I joined because I loved marketing, but I realized I was surrounded by people that needed my help. And then in particular, I got invited by a few different people to do things related to e-commerce, go to different masterminds and uh, go to different events. And I realized that in e-commerce, it was even more acute in the sense that people in e-commerce really needed patent help with regard to the products they were selling. So that's kind of my path of being here is I've gotten heavily involved in e-commerce and in the Amazon space in recent years because of my love of marketing and because I realized that and within marketing, e-commerce is the place to be. Okay. So what, before you, you started getting in this whole kind of, I guess, universe that, that Amazon sellers know about, did you have a, a specific kind of client you were doing, like a certain kind of industry that you were in before you got involved with the e-commerce world? 
I've always worked with entrepreneurs my entire career. I mean, kind of by, um, by necessity in the beginning. So if, if you're someone who just comes out of law school and you're looking to get clients, you're not going to get um, AT&T or some major companies as clients. It's going to be smaller entrepreneur uh, startups and things of that nature. So basically through my whole career, it's been startups. And actually, even at a certain point, I real, when I had the opportunity to work with bigger companies, I realized I didn't want to. I much prefer working with, with smaller companies and, and entrepreneurs. So that's kind of how I, um, how I ended up working with that type of client. And among the years, mostly what I've worked on are, are consumer products, software. And I've done a patent on just about any type of product you could think of. If you look around the room, almost anything we could point to, I've worked on on a product related to that. I've, I've gotten over 2000 patents at this point. Uh, real quick, just, just came to my mind of those 2000 that you worked on, tell us something that like, that sticks out in your mind as like one of the craziest and it needs to be a, a, this is a PG event. So I'm not sure if you work on any really crazy things out there, but uh, what is some of the craziest of those 2000 products that sticks out in your mind? Okay. Well, first of all, I have worked on many non-PG products. I before. imagine I imagine that to be the case, which is why I preface that. With yes. Okay. So, so maybe the 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 kind of craziest from a scratch your head point of view was um, someone came to me years ago to patent a new method of tying shoelaces, which I actually I was able to do. I was able to patent this new method of tying shoelaces so that they don't come untied. Well, hold on, hold on. A method. Can be patented. A method can be patented. Yes, That's, I didn't even know that. That's shocking to me. Yeah, well, actually, because methods can can be patented is the reason why software is patentable. So mm. traditionally, one of the categories for patents has been a process, and the most traditional form of that would be we've got a new a new process for refining steel, where there's nothing different about the end product, but we've got a more efficient way of doing it. Maybe we heat the metal to a certain temperature, and then we add a certain additive and then we cool it and whatever that process is, whatever that, that series of steps was, that's what was patented. And then over the years and, and actually only within the last couple of decades, they extended that to allow software to be patented. It was for a very long time, you weren't able to patent software. And then at a certain point, um, the, the, the courts relented and said, well, okay, um, process that a software that a software product goes through or the the method that software follows isn't that different than a, like a method of manufacturing so why not so yes a method or a process can be patented all right that's interesting so do you use that technique to tie your own shoes or or would that be against would that be breaking the patent right there uh well i don't even remember the details of it i okay. mean we could we could look it up for fun and 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 uh, see what it's all about but basically um I guess the thing that sticks out in my mind about that is that, okay, great. So we've patented this method of tying shoes. How do you monetize that? Hmm. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's gotta be the, I mean, this thing is not cheap. So you've got to kind of usually, unless you're just some eccentric millionaire or something and just want to patent stuff, you got to have an end game in mind. What was that guy's end game with that? I never figured out what the end game was. Hmm. But in any case, it was one of those that sticks out of my mind. And yes, people do often patent things because they, they just want to have a patent for vanity's sake. Mm -hmm. um, and there's lots of reasons people seek patents. Um, a lot of times, though, in e-commerce, there's got to be a much more pr pragmatic reason. There's got to be some really solid value 
to the business. Because I, one of the things that I've realized about e-commerce entrepreneurs and Amazon entrepreneurs is that you're operating on tight margins. And so generally the successful ones, the successful entrepreneurs are very cost conscious. And they're, uh, they're aware that anything that they're spending money on can impact the product's failure or mm -hmm. success. And, and therefore, if you're going to spend money on a patent, it's got to be one that actually is going to help your business. And yeah. that's not always the case. And that's really the sweet spot for me is I like to help entrepreneurs figure out whether this is a worthwhile project. Let's talk about that for a second. Now, first of all, you know, of course, I'm sure it's burning for anybody who has never gotten a patent out there. The most logical question is, well, what is the typical price for this whole process to get a patent? So, you know, people have an idea about how, you know, how much it costs for a trademark, which is different, but you know, you know what, hold on, let's take two steps back. Please tell us the difference between a trademark and a patent. And then please answer that question about what the typical patent process would cost someone. Got it. Okay. So, so first of all, uh, people often confuse trademarks and patents and copyrights even. And so you hear people saying things like, Hey, that's a great, great idea for a product. You should copyright that. Or that's a really cool name. You should patent that. And those type of statements just reflect a mismatch of the type of thing and the type of protection. So patents, it, when you think patents, think products. If you want to protect a product idea, that's what a patent is for. Um, when it comes to a brand or um, a slogan or a logo, that's a trademark. So trademarks are used to protect the things that people use to identify products in the marketplace. So you see the, the name Coca-Cola, you see that wavy line that's typically on Coca-Cola yep. cans. Yep. Even you see a, a, a can with that red and white color scheme, you think Coca-Cola. So those are all trademarks of Coca-Cola. Uh, patents, on the other hand, are used to protect the, a product. And two main types of patents, utility patent, is when there are functional differences, and design patent, when it's um, more about just the shape or the ornamental appearance of the product. And with regard to the cost then, so um, design patents are relatively inexpensive, probably a few thousand dollars to do a design patent. Uh, utility patent, usually north of $10,000. So utility patents are more um, complicated to put together. They're more expensive. They tend to be more difficult to get. And, um, and, and here's one thing that I think would be of great use to your audience is the logic of which patent to go for, um, whether utility or design is often reversed when you're selling on Amazon. So conventional logic is that utility patents are more valuable because utility patents protect the functionality. They protect the concept of what makes it different where design patents just protect an appearance. And so over the years, people would often say, don't bother with design patents because it just protects the way it looks. And if you change the way it looks, then they're not going to infringe. But a couple of realities on Amazon. Uh, number one is people don't tend to use imagination when they're copying your product. They don't say, hey, that's a really cool product. Let me, maybe I'll make my own interpretation of it. They just unimaginatively knock it off and it's going to look the same. So, so chances are if you get a design patent and someone else knocks off your product, it's going to look just like your design patent. Um, second is the, the way that patents are interpreted. So utility patents are interpreted by words, by a definition 
of what the invention is. Uh, design patents are interpreted by looking at the pictures and saying, well, does it look substantially similar? So now fast forward to a situation where you have a design patent and you see another seller with a listing that looks just like yours. Uh, imagine that you went to do an IP complaint to Amazon with your utility patent. Um, basically, they're going to have to interpret the words of your patent to figure out if the competing listing fits the definition of your invention, which is a relatively complex thing for Amazon to do. And, and uh, I mean, you can only imagine the level of employees they're actually working on, on handling these IP complaints. But if on the other hand, you make an IP complaint with a design patent and they just have to look at the pictures and they look at your picture and they look at the listing and it looks the same, they say, shut them down. So it's very easy to get a listing shut down on Amazon with a design patent. In fact, uh, many of, of your audience have probably experienced that listings get shut down unfairly a lot because of design patents that maybe aren't even that close. So it seems that Amazon has been deferring to, to IP owners, particular IP owners of design patents. So I think it pays to be the IP owner pays to be the one holding the design patent. Okay. So that's interesting. So like for the design patents, then like, from you know, Amazon obviously has their own standards and it sounds like they're not very advanced as far as that goes, but from a legal standpoint, is there a, like a percentage different it can be, or like what, what's the standard from a legal standpoint off of Amazon, where if you have a design patent, like if I have a, a fidget spinner, but it's like 50% of it looks completely different. Like it's got way longer arms or whatever. Like what's the legal basis for, for where they, they draw the line as if you're infringing or not? Well, okay. The, um, it doesn't go by a percentage because it's really impossible to, mm -hmm. to, uh, to say what actually 50% different is. Like if I look at two, two bottles next to each other, Poland spring and an arrowhead bottle. And I say, well, how different are they? Is that 10% or 20%? You couldn't put a number on it. Right. Oh, yeah. So, um, but now in terms of infringement, the standard for infringement of design patents is whether it has a substantially similar appearance to an ordinary observer. Mm. So that's the standard, okay. which doesn't help very much. Right. And usually that's put to a jury of what, it, of whether it has a substantially similar appearance. Um, but then there is one additional complication to that. Um, one additional caveat to it, which is that it's always subject to whatever existed before, whatever existed before that patent. So it's like, okay, someone's comparing your chair um, to their design patent for a chair. And they're saying, well, it looks substantially similar. But then you might say, well, yeah, it does look substantially, substantially similar because they both have four legs, but well before yours, chairs had four legs. So Yes, it's about what's similar, but it's always a matter of looking to the prior art, what existed before. So a lot of times, and, and I deal with this when I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a, a listing shutdown and someone got shut down unfairly, is I'm, I'm not trying to argue about the small differences between the two. I'm trying to show that maybe mine looks closer to one that existed 50 years ago than it does to the, to the patent that we're being accused by. Mm. So that's often one of the best arguments to make. And, and this is 
that's that's actually something I I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned it about six seven minutes ago, but a lot of people are victims of of the abuse kind of of this system of the reporting and stuff. So what if what's the best defense? I mean, obviously, if somebody just totally ripped off a product, they had no idea it was a patent. Hey, that's on you, buddy. But for the person who who is being targeted, maybe by the IP owner who's not even the IP owner, which I've heard about happening, or there is a patent, but they're really making it a stretch that they're saying this person infringes. What what recourse does an Amazon seller have? How can they argue that? Yes. Well, um, the, the, the best argument to make is one that's based on the prior art, as I was kind of alluding to a moment ago. So I think the the, the losing arguments tend to be, well, mine's a little bit more curved or the base of mine is flat. And this one is um, rectangular or something like that. Um, and, and that doesn't work very well because Amazon doesn't like to disturb things when it's shades of gray. And it's like, well, it's a little different in this way or that way. The winning arguments tend to be found in the prior art. They tend to be found in what existed before. and um, when I've represented people and helped them overcome a listing shutdown, it's always been because we found something from five years earlier that just was even closer than anyone thought existed to the patent and, and basically close enough to show that, okay, we don't need to say that the patent's invalid because I don't think Amazon's going to want to rule on that. But what you do is you play toward the vagueness of it. It's like, well, look, I don't know how, how they're interpreting how this patent should be interpreted, but whatever it's being interpreted for, it can't be for that. It can't be for the thing that existed five years ago. And mine is just like that. So you find something just like yours that existed well before in the, before the patent, you, you say, well, can, can you, is there something like a trademark where you can actually see when the patent was instituted so that you can say, Hey, it can't be about this one five years ago because it was only made two years ago. Or how, how does that work? Yes. Well, well, on the patent document itself, it says when it was filed. There we go. That's what I was looking um, for. And, and anything that existed more than a year before the patent would either be the reason that the patent should have been rejected mm-hmm. or like, you know, like I said, like the, the argument I play into with Amazon with this is like, okay, well, let's assume that they shouldn't have rejected. Let's assume that there was some basis for granting this patent, something different about the design. Whatever reason they granted this patent, it couldn't have been uh, for, it couldn't have been for this because that existed five years earlier. So um, good. that's been a winning argument that I've actually batting a thousand on. Every time I've made that argument, I've, I've succeeded. Okay. So there is a way to get through to Amazon because I know some people say, hey, no, Amazon just sends me that letter. Hey, take it up with the, uh, the IP owner and then that's it. But, but you, you got to be persistent. And, it's, and it can be very frustrating because mm-hmm. like I've put together a, you know, a well-reasoned argument that really appeals toward the fairness and the truth of the situation. Um, and you get back a response that says, in answering an IP complaint, um, um, you know, please um, submit invoices to show that these pr- products were purchased from a legitimate source or whatever. And then, well, no, that's not our point. <laughs> we're not trying to say that you know, we're saying that, that the patent doesn't apply to this, not that we should be yeah. um, buying yeah. it from them. Um, so yeah, so sometimes you have to deal with several rounds of that to get to someone who actually can hear the argument. Okay. So now when somebody gets a patent, obviously it's enforceable in the United States, but is that pretty much it? Like 
it's something happens in China, something happens in Europe, whether it's Amazon Europe or anywhere in Europe or Africa or South America, it's, it's wild, wild west still for that. Or do other countries actually honor a U.S. patent? Patents are territorial. So a U.S. patent only counts for the U.S. Chinese patent only counts for China. Um, and though at the same time, a U.S. patent is to prevent someone from making, using, or selling the product in the U.S. So they can make it in China, but they can't import it into the U.S. or sell it here. So a lot of times the reason people say, well, maybe I need to get a patent in China um, so that they um, can't manufacture in China. Well, no, actually a U.S. patent would prevent them from, from using or selling the product here. Um, the only reason you'd want a patent in China or say in, in the European Union is if you're actually looking to sell products there or you're concerned about someone else selling the product there. Okay. All right. That's good to know. Now, again, last three years, you have, you know, opened up your, your, your business a little bit more to Amazon sellers. So, you know, we talked about the, the shoelace guy who is obviously not an Amazon seller, but for, from your clients who have sold on Amazon, what's a, a case where the, you know, they, they got a patent with you and man, you know, that this really saved their butt because there was this big company who's going to try and come after, or, or there's a bunch of hijackers or something. Can, can you give us an example that, that can maybe inspire somebody to actually think about like, Hey, yeah, may, maybe patent is something I should look into. Um, yeah, I, I can't give specifics yeah. on my own clients. Um, mm -hmm. and actually I'll tell a, a story about a friend of mine who, who didn't ha happen to get the patent through me. Uh, but, um, he relayed the story and I love it of how he, um, he put out his product and he, he filed for design patent and, um, and then a whole bunch of other counterfeiters came in and started copying his product. And so he waited and he endured this for, I guess about a year until the, the design patent issued. And the way he describes it, he said on one glorious day, he shut down 40 of his competitors uh, for selling the same product. So with a design patent that cost him just a few thousand dollars. Yeah. So sometimes I think sellers get in the wrong mindset, you know, when they think about costs, you know, like I, I know sellers who I'm sure you, you do too. You go to a lot of events where it's like, man, if I'm paying seven, 800 bucks for a trademark, that's like, Oh my God, that's a lot of money. So then they're, they're maybe listening right now. They're like, for the cheaper patent, it's a few thousand dollars. And he's saying that's a small amount. Now, what are some cases though? I mean, so obviously the bottom line is, yeah, it's not going to be for everybody. I mean, there's millions of sellers on Amazon. Some are just, you know, maybe wholesale sellers selling a pack of a hundred pens for $5. Okay. Yeah. They probably don't need, they, it's not a good business decision to, to spend, you know, four or $5,000 on a patent. So what kind of sellers or what kind of products, I guess, do you suggest where it's like, Hey, this is something you should highly consider doing as a protection? Well, I mean, it, it's hard to know what product is going to be successful and, and what isn't. And it's also hard to know what's going to be copied and, and what isn't going to be copied and then isn't necessary to protect. But I would say, first of all, if, if you have a track record of selling products where you put products out that sold 10,000 a month, 100,000 a month, then it's probably worthwhile on something that you have a good hunch on that it's going to be successful to, to get a, 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 at least a design patent for. Because, I mean, if you think about the economics of 
the possible ways it could play out. I mean, if you end up selling a hundred thousand dollars worth of product and a competitor comes in and you can, and you can stop them from selling even for one day, it pays for the cost of the, uh, of the patent. Um, I mean, it doesn't take long. You know, obviously if the product isn't successful, then it feels like a whole lot of money, but if the product is successful, I mean, there, the, the difference between having a patent and shutting down your competitors and not having a patent and not having that bill, that ability can easily be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I would say, um, first of all, if you do have that track record that you know that you've launched products that have sold well, that you might consider doing design patents and, and it's hedging. If you, you do 10 patents and t- 10 products, 10 design patents, you end up spending say $30,000. Like what are the chances that, that even only one of them is going to save you more than $30,000 worth of lost sales? It's probably rather likely. So that's one thing. Um, also, I would say that one of the ways that you save money on this is by using discernment about what products you pursue and which ones you don't. So if you're, um, um, if, if you think about the notion of every seller on Amazon spending thousands of dollars on, on, on design patents, obviously that wouldn't be worthwhile. Um, and, and so just making those decisions about which ones to pursue, if, you, if your budget is limited and if you're closer to starting out, then it pays to pick the right projects, it pays to pick the thing where you're going to get meaningful protection. I think one of the biggest traps that people fall into is they go to patent their first product. And in the end, it's not worthwhile. And then maybe their second or third product is really something that they should have been patenting, but they feel burned by that first experience with patenting and that it's not worthwhile and they don't bother. So uh, often I think the, the best thing you can do is just use discernment on which product, product you pursue for a patent. All right. So now sometimes I imagine there are cases where it doesn't matter the person's lofty goals. It doesn't matter if it's a great selling product, it doesn't matter if they're multimillionaires and, and $10,000 is a drop in the bucket. It's just not something that you can patent, like, you know, paper straws or something. You, you say like, Hey, I invented paper straws. So I'm going to patent paper straws. So what are the cases where you can't really do it? Like, is that, is that an accurate statement? What I just said, I mean, like I can't go and and patent something that's existed for 10 years. Right. Correct. Yep. Okay. So what, what are some other cases where, you can't, I mean, even if you want to or not, it's not something you can patent. Right. Well, well, well the easiest way to, to distill that down is like, you can't patent what already exists. And so, um, how, um, your ability to patent something and how valuable the patent you get is always a function of how different it is. So that's really the critical thing. There, there are patents that are, um, are very valuable and there are patents that are really worthless. And the difference between them is whether it protects a concept uh, or whether it just protects a very specific way of doing it. And, and we're talking about utility patents right now, not put design patents aside. But, um, but the point is you, you invent something, you come up with a, a product and it's got some unique features. And what you want to make sure is, is the feature that you think really makes it distinct, is that in itself different from what exists before? If it is, then you can get a patent on that. 
And that's great because what you want is a patent that's going to protect the thing that matters to your customers, the thing that matters to your competition. You want to make it so that your competitors would look at your patent and say, well, if we can't make it with that feature, then we shouldn't bother because that's what all the customers want. So if you're able to, to protect that actual thing, that's great. But a lot of the time when people get utility patents, they're getting something that's very specific. Because as it turns out, that feature wasn't all that different. And because it wasn't that different, maybe they were able to get a patent on some real specific details about the product. But who cares about those details? Because people can still copy what you thought was the cool part of it. They just can't do it if they do all of the details. So it's not really stopping the competition from competing with you. And therefore, that's a worthless patent. So the thing you always want to do is explore what actually existed before your product. Um, and in that way, you can judge how different it really is. And therefore, whether you're headed toward a patent, which would be valuable and one which would just be, let's say, in name only, meaning like I've got a patent but there's nothing I could really enforce it against. And that happens often. Okay. Good to know. Now, speaking of good to know, you, you know, you know, Norm Farrar. I do. All right. So I just say he was the last one last week I recorded on the podcast. And as I was just, you know, I have very bad attention, ADHD, and then my mind was wandering and I came up with a segment for the podcast while I was talking to him and I called it Basically, basically TST, that's kind of like what my Filipino grandparents, when they wanted to get my attention, they would say, stands for 30 second tip. So he was the first one to do it. And I'm trying to make this a thing. So he gave something about launching a products. I don't remember what it was. So I'm going to ask you to give your, what 30 second tip do you have as it pertains to, you know, patent law or, or anything really for our e-commerce and Amazon sellers who are listeners out there? So 30 second tip is that if you are sourcing a product and you're looking to make a, a competing product and you see a patent number on it, look it up. Just look up the patent because th there's a chance the patent could be expired. And if the patent's expired, then it's fair game. And a lot of people, they see a patent number and they just stop. So always look up the patent um, and you can do that on Google patents which uh, is a great place to look up a patent when you know the patent number or the name of the inventor. And that's at patents, P-A-T-E-N-T-S dot Google dot com. So you see it when you see a, a, a patent number on a product, then always look it up and get to, to know the landscape of what actually is going on around that product and what they might actually. Awesome. Own. All right. Time's up. All right. That's good. One last question. Not a, tss, but just, uh, you know, since you're from New York, best pizza in the five boroughs, my two are right next door to each other. And I just want to get your viewpoint. Juliana's and Grimaldi's, they're in Brooklyn. What's your, what's, what say you? Yeah, Grimaldi's is definitely, um, definitely up there. And um, yeah, you know, it, it's, that's difficult. I, I'd say the, the, the best pizza um, on, uh, in New York doesn't exist anymore. There's two places that used to exist on Staten Island where I came from. Um, and uh um, one of them was a place called Pizza Town. And I, every once in a while, I have a slice of pizza. I'm like, almost tastes like Pizza Town. I could still remember what it tastes like. Mm. So, but yes, Grimaldi's is definitely um, well up there. Um, and I think they have some places on the, on the West Coast now too. I, mean, I think they have it in I, did, I haven't tried it yet because I don't want yeah. to be disappointed, but I think in, actually in, in LA or somewhere, they might have a Grimaldi's. Yeah, I think in, in, in Scottsdale also. Cool. Yeah. All right. Now 
before you go here, I'm sure people have uh, other questions. If they want to reach you, whether they're, they're interested in, in trying to get a patent for one of their products or just maybe ask you some more, some advice or some more, or even some more pizza advice, how, how can they find you or how can they find that, that, that book you wrote about patents? Where can they go? All right, first of all, the book is the ABA Consumer Guide to Obtaining a Patent, and that's available on Amazon and it's less than 20 bucks. Uh, it's, it's written in plain English and it's a really great resource. I also have videos online. If you go to patentvideos.com, it's a, it's just a free six video course that explains how patents work and there's no upsell. It's just an opportunity to learn. And um, if you want to um, see if, if, if uh, we can help you with a particular project, then contact my team and you can go to goldsteinpatentlaw.com um, and or email my assistant um, Phyllis, which is welcome at goldsteinpc.com. All right. Well, thank you very much, Rich, for joining us here. I, I look forward to going to a club where I do not try to eat your very generous earplugs next time. So we'll definitely have to actually, we're, we're going to an event this Sunday in, in San Diego. So you, maybe you should bring some earplugs just for old time's sake uh, at the, uh, at the event. Sounds good. Thanks so much. See you later. Quick note, guys, don't forget that regardless where you are listening to this podcast, whether it's on your iPhone or on Stitcher or on Spotify, that you hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified every time we drop a new episode.